millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we have episode 5 of our Iconic Ships podcast, in which a curator of a historic ship gets to make their case for their ship being iconic. Or a historian takes a ship from history, but which sadly no longer survives, and makes a case for that ship being iconic. We're on a bit of a run of British ships at the moment. Not only that, but British ships in London. So the last episode was on the Cutty Sark, that magnificent tea clipper now on display in Greenwich. And this week we have none other than HMS Belfast, moored today just upstream of Tower Bridge, a true icon of the London skyline and the Thames Riverscape. A Royal Navy town-class light cruiser launched in 1938. She has so many reasons for being iconic, but my favourite, I think, is that she is one of only three remaining vessels from the bombardment fleet which supported the Normandy landings on the 6th of June 1944. The other vessels are the destroyer USS Laffey, part of the historic ships grouped at Patriots Point in South Carolina, and the dreadnought battleship USS Texas at South San Jacinto in Texas. Anyway, it's not for me to say you're probably all dying to hear from someone who really, really knows about HMS Belfast. And that, I think, is the real beauty of this series on iconic ships, particularly the historic ones, as you get to hear from people who are emotionally and professionally invested in their preservation and sharing their story. And so here is Robert Rumble, curator, Second World War and mid-20th century at the Imperial War Museum in London and currently lead curator for HMS Belfast. Rob has a specialism in Second World War and Cold War naval history. He also specialises in irregular warfare, spies and intelligence and RAF photography. But as lead curator of Belfast, there really is no one better placed to tell you all about her. Do remember that we will be holding a vote at the end of the year to celebrate all of our entries and to see which one you like the most. I personally think this is a cracker. Here's Rob. Moored on the Thames in the heart of ancient London, near the site of the Roman Bridge, the Norman Tower, the Elizabethan Globe, and surrounded by the vanished spectres of the old docks through which wealth flowed into Britain from the Empire, 
the cruiser HMS Belfast is the icon of Britain's recent naval history. In the days when Britannia ruled the waves, it was ironclad capital ships that led the way, delivering Britain's uncontested naval strength wherever it needed to go. HMS Belfast is now the last surviving big gun warship from this period of global dominance by the Royal Navy. Britain's naval power extended from the early 19th to the mid-20th century. For most of that time, the size and strength of Britain's naval fleet surpassed those of all its rivals, and for much of it exceeded the strength of the next two biggest fleets combined. As naval technology evolved from wood to steel, coal to oil, to embrace big guns and cemented armour, the Royal Navy remained ahead of the game Belfast is the clearest remaining symbol of this pivotal period of modern British history. However, it was touch and go on the 14th of October 1971 when two tugboats drew Belfast along the Thames from Tilbury to pass gingerly under Tower Bridge. One man waited on top of the mast just in case it wouldn't fit. But the calculations were precise and the neap tide spot on. With only a few feet to spare, but exuding supreme confidence, the 11,500-tonne warship passed majestically under the arch of the bridge and came to rest midway between the Tower of London and London Bridge. In a berth specially dredged to make the river deep enough, this unique ship, saved from the scrap heap to become a museum, has rested in the Pool of London for almost 50 years, distinctive, Unmatched, a unique feature on the skyline, Belfast holds its own among the new architectural statements of the Shard, the Gherkin and the walkie-talkie. To take things back to the beginning, Belfast was designed and built in the mid-1930s in response to growing international tensions. Other world powers were starting to move away from the strict terms of the Naval Arms Limitation Treaties that had controlled the levels of warship building since the First World War. Both the Japanese and the Americans were starting to develop new, more powerful cruisers that represented a clear strategic threat to Britain and its fleet. HMS Belfast and its sister ship, HMS Edinburgh, were developed as a response to these new and growing dangers. Belfast was launched amid great celebration on St Patrick's Day, 17th of March 1938, by the British Prime Minister's wife, Mrs Anne Chamberlain. As this new state-of-the-art cruiser slid down the slipways of Harland and Wolf shipyard in the city of Belfast itself, a storm of deepening tension was spreading across the world. Cruisers had evolved as powerful, well-armed and armoured warships that could move quickly around the world to protect Britain's merchant ships and other valuable possessions of empire. They were intended to act as the protectors of the vital trade routes that bound together the economy of the empire. As a third iteration of the Southampton or town-class cruisers first developed in 1933, Belfast emerged shortly before the Second World War as one of the largest and most powerful cruisers ever built. It was designed to act as a flagship, operating as the platform for an admiral in his command of either a cruiser squadron or a larger fleet. In this role, Belfast played a central role in the conduct of the Battle of the North Cape in December 1943, 
when British ships tracked down and sank the German battleship Scharnhorst. During two phases of the battle, Belfast engaged Scharnhorst with the main armament of its 6-inch guns, as well as its 21-inch torpedoes, and in this way became a key player in the last ship-to-ship battle fought in European waters. In December 1943, HMS Belfast was escorting a convoy of Allied merchant ships carrying supplies to the Soviet Union. Also at sea was the Scharnhorst, with Germany locked in a desperate battle for survival against the Red Army. Scharnhorst hoped to catch and destroy this Allied convoy. Aboard Belfast was Vice Admiral Bob Burnett. He commanded Cruiser Force 1, a squadron made up of Belfast, Sheffield and Norfolk. In the stormy and freezing Arctic waters of the North Cape of Norway, and in almost perpetual darkness of the northern winter, Burnett coordinated Force 1's defence of the convoy, frustrating Scharnhorst's attempts to attack. When Scharnhorst eventually retreated towards her base in northern Norway, Admiral Burnett in Belfast gave chase. With Sheffield and Norfolk damaged, Belfast was alone, pursuing the powerful German battleship at maximum speed. At any moment, Scharnhorst might turn and attack. As Scharnhorst ran south, Burnett shadowed the German ship by radar. Constantly reporting Scharnhorst's position, Burnett enabled Admiral Sir Bruce Fraser at sea in the British battleship HMS Duke of York to intercept. As Fraser closed in, Belfast fired star shells. These bright flares illuminated the target as Duke of York's heavy guns opened fire. After a run-in battle, under hammering gunfire and hit by torpedoes from British and Norwegian ships, Scharnhorst was sunk. From a crew of nearly 2,000 men, only 36 survived. North Cape represents only one episode in Belfast's dynamic 25-year-long service history. On the outbreak of war, it was immediately deployed as an integral part of the British blockade of Germany. However, in November 1939, a German magnetic mine exploded under the ship in the Firth of Forth and caused extensive structural damage. Towed to Devonport in 1940, Belfast was painstakingly rebuilt in a process hampered by wartime shortages, changing priorities and intense enemy air attack on Plymouth, and that was not completed until November 1942. During this time, there were crucial advances in ship-borne radar, and when it returned to service, Belfast was equipped with some of these innovative developments, making it the most advanced cruiser in the Royal Navy. From December 1942 to April 1944, Belfast was involved in the most active period of its life, predominantly deployed in protecting Arctic convoys as they carried crucial supplies to Britain's ally, the Soviet Union. Thousands of crewmen who would serve aboard the ship during this period were faced with the misery of warfare in the icy waters of the Arctic. Never dry, always cold, short of sleep. The ship overworked and desperately needing time for maintenance. Every second of each hour, every day, the fear of a freezing death. These were the conditions which became part of life for the men who served on the Arctic convoys. Belfast carried out long-range escorts. This role involved sailing up to 50 miles ahead of the convoy, either alone or as part of a cruiser group, 
as at North Cape, to clear the path of any German warships or U-boats. Belfast regularly sailed between its home base of Scarpa Flow to Kola Inlet, Murmansk, in northern Russia, with only a stop-off in Iceland to resupply. Belfast's crew were essentially confined to ship throughout this period, some duties on shore at Murmansk and at Scarpa Flow being the only opportunities to leave the ship. Winston Churchill himself described the Arctic convoys as the worst journey in the world. Belfast's illustrious history continued on D-Day on the 6th of June 1944, where it acted as the flagship of the Allied warships tasked with bombarding German positions around Juneau and Gold Beaches at the heart of the Normandy landings. At 0527 hours, Belfast had trained its guns on the Normandy town of Vers-sur-Mer to destroy a German artillery position covering the landing beaches. This bombardment lasted for two hours before landing craft swept past and surged up the beaches. British soldiers from the 7th Battalion Green Howards found smashed German bunkers with troops shell-shocked inside due to Belfast's heavy bombardment. Winston Churchill, being the maverick that he was, and with his disregard for protocol, wanted to witness the bombardment of the Normandy beaches from the front line, in the thick of the action. D-Day was the culmination of over three years of preparation, negotiation and national struggle, and Churchill wanted to be there. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As headquarters ship of the Bombardment Group of the Eastern Task Force, Belfast would have been the ship to host the Prime Minister. Senior British commanders were horrified by this prospect, 
fearing at best Churchill would meddle in operations and at worst be at risk of becoming a casualty. Only masterful intervention by His Majesty King George VI persuaded Churchill to stay in Britain. In a letter to Churchill, the King wrote, Dear Winston, I want to ask you one more time not to go to sea on D-Day. I understand why you want to, and I want to go myself, but I realise that I can't, and it's not fair that you should go if I'm prevented from going. Another issue is that it will be impossible to contact you, and we may need you to make an important decision. Also, if you're on a ship, then the commander of that ship will be restricted in what he can do, because he'll be responsible for your safety. If you went, you'd cause me and your fellow ministers a lot of anxiety. Your friend, King George. After a month off the Normandy coast, Belfast returned to Britain to be refitted to join the war against Japan. Transformed from a ship intended to serve in northern waters into one equipped for service in the tropics, it left Britain in May 1945, just as the Germans surrendered in Europe, and arrived in Western Australia on the 15th of August, the day the Japanese too finally surrendered. Belfast then began a long period of service in and around the Pacific and Indian Oceans that continued until 1962. Initially, it was involved in the restoration of the pre-war order across the Far East, attempting to reassure Britain's allies and its imperial citizens that the old status quo had returned. As a flagship in the Far East fleet, Belfast and its admiral also developed a new relationship with China as it struggled with its civil war, making regular visits to Shanghai, Hong Kong and Formosa. Belfast was in Japan when North Korea invaded South Korea in June 1950. The new United Nations resolved to liberate the South and the Royal Navy would play a significant role in the protracted war that followed. Belfast went back into action. The ship was in almost constant combat against the communist North Koreans and Chinese for the next two years. Victory in Korea was key to the Cold War policy of containment in order for the United States and its allies to prevent the spread of communism. Belfast spent more than 400 days on patrol during the Korean War, steaming over 80,000 miles. In winter, sea conditions reminded its crew of those it had faced in the Arctic, sub-zero temperatures, ice flows, stormy seas and snow. In summer, the crew faced almost tropical conditions in stifling heat and humidity. Belfast frequently bombarded shore targets, firing so much ammunition, more than 8,000 six-inch shells, that it had to have its worn-out gun barrels replaced. For the accuracy of a bombardment in July 1950, the United States Navy praised it as that straight-shooting ship. Returning to Britain in late 1952, Belfast's long-term future was called into question. It was not until 1955 that a final decision was taken to invest in this still powerful ship and make Belfast fit for the emerging threats of atomic, biological and chemical warfare. In 1959, a significantly rebuilt ship returned to the Far East to enter the Cold War, actively participating in regular exercises under the South East Asia Treaty Organisation, CETO, 
as a sign of Britain's ongoing commitment to the defence of the Asia-Pacific region against communist expansion. In March 1962, Belfast left the Far East for the last time and undertook a long voyage home from Singapore to Hong Kong to Guam, Pearl Harbour, San Francisco, Vancouver, the Panama Canal and Trinidad, before crossing the Atlantic to reach Portsmouth on the 19th of June. Its long global adventure was over. After 25 years of active service at sea, in 1966, Belfast became an accommodation ship for the naval reservists moored at Portsmouth. This meant that, at the end of the 1960s, it remained almost intact, with many of its historic features still in good condition. It was in Portsmouth's Fairham Creek that it was visited in April 1967 by an Imperial War Museum delegation led by the Director General, Dr Noble Frankland. They were in search of a six-inch gun turret to preserve in front of the museum in Lambeth Road. After a frustrating viewing of the derelict HMS Gambia, they had lunch in Belfast's wardroom. The continued historic integrity and excellent condition of this ship was immediately obvious in contrast to Gambia. Having a long and rich history that stretched from before the Second World War to the Cold War, it was immediately clear that Belfast was a candidate for preservation as a historic symbol of Britain's years of naval strength. In 1971, after several years of negotiation, it was agreed by the government that it would be the first British warship to be kept for the nation since HMS Victory. A berth was found for Belfast in the Pool of London, opposite the Tower of London, and on that historic day, 1971, Belfast arrived at the location where it has remained ever since and been visited by millions of visitors. There is no other ship in the world like HMS Belfast with its rich history incorporating the Second World War, Britain's Imperial Recovery, the Korean War and the Cold War. Other battleships are preserved in the USA, many even larger than Belfast. But more realistically sized... Belfast offers people the opportunity to see what life was like on a 20th century warship during several periods of modern history in a single visit. It exists today as it was rebuilt for the Cold War, but the signs and vestiges of its earlier service can still be clearly seen, and many elements of it remain largely unchanged. Over the course of 80 years of history, both in service and as a popular visitor attraction, Belfast has been constantly upgraded and rebuilt. In the major refit undertaken between 1956 and 1959, many areas of the ship were enclosed to allow a comprehensive air conditioning and air filtration system to be installed. This was to make Belfast capable of surviving atomic, biological and chemical attacks by controlling and filtering the airflow within the ship. As part of these changes, the original external captain's bridge was brought inside behind protected windows and sealed doors. This required the complete removal and replacement of the superstructure, an act that significantly altered the profile of the ship. When first commissioned in 1939, the ship was equipped with two supermarine walrus folded wing aircraft. 
These were launched from a catapult positioned just aft of the superstructure. After Belfast was fitted with radar, the reconnaissance role of the aircraft became redundant and they were removed from the ship. The torpedo tubes fired at North Cape were also held no longer to be needed and removed in Sydney in 1946. As well as being an impressive fighting ship, Belfast was also home to some 950 crew. They lived for long periods of time in close proximity. The mess decks where they ate and slept, the galleys where their food was cooked and the sick bay where they were treated routinely and when wounded in battle, are all open to the public and show what life was like in a large modern warship. Since the early 1970s, Imperial War Museums has been collecting the stories of the multitude of men who crewed the ship and their families back home, offering another unique asset not available to any other preserved ship in being preserved within the IWM. The story of Belfast's ship's company over the ages can be brought to life from these letters, diaries, photographs and oral histories carefully curated and presented in the very places where their experiences took place, these personal testaments show how every person played their part and worked together to turn Belfast into one huge, efficiently run living machine. Over its 25-year active service, Belfast steamed some half a million miles around the world and circumnavigated the globe. It visited a wide range of countries and people in many different circumstances. Some were in war, but many more in peace. Belfast steamed across the Atlantic and the Pacific and through the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. It visited Africa, India, China, Japan, Australia and the United States, among with many others. Its crew brought a new house for an impoverished family in Hong Kong and helped at an orphanage in India. As well as from across the nations of the United Kingdom, the men who served in the ship came from Hong Kong, Singapore, Canada, Australia, and even one or two from Africa and India. Beyond the obvious key events of naval warfare, Belfast's story is rich and diverse, offering all visitors a chance to explore and discover the unique experience of this great survivor. It truly remains one of the most iconic ships preserved anywhere in the world. Thanks so much for listening. Please do make sure that you find the Society for Nautical Research online at snr.org.uk. And please follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and the Mariner's Mirror pod has its own Instagram and YouTube channel, which is becoming a fabulous repository of some really innovative ways of presenting the maritime past. Please share, share, share. Tell everyone you know about the podcast. You can also get in touch with ideas. I've set up a strand on the Society's free forum for idea proposals for the Mariner's Mirror podcast. But best of all, please put your hand in your pocket and join the SNR. Your annual subscription will not only support this podcast, but will help us publish the most important maritime history and preserve our maritime past.